the record of what happened during the Reagan years was extraordinary. The world was transformed. And I had a ringside seat, and occasionally I was in the ring. Former U.S. Secretary of State George Shultz. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Welcome back to Schultz Week here on Now I've Heard Everything. We're featuring interviews this week with prominent personalities I've interviewed who are named Schultz. On Monday, former Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz. Today, former United States Secretary of State George Schultz, who served in various positions under three U.S. presidents. In fact, he at one time or another held four different cabinet-level positions. An economist by training, Schultz came to Washington as Richard Nixon's first labor secretary. After about a year at that, he was moved over to the director of Office of Management and Budget, and a year later, Nixon named him Treasury Secretary. Ronald Reagan was elected president in 1980, and in 1982, he named George Shultz to be his Secretary of State, a position that Shultz would hold until the end of the Reagan presidency six years later. And Shultz proved to be instrumental in shaping the Reagan administration's foreign policy. I met George Shultz in the spring of 1993 when he wrote a long memoir about his six years at the State Department. So here now, from 1993, George Shultz. The record of what happened during the Reagan years was extraordinary. The world was transformed. And I had a ringside seat, and occasionally I was in the ring. And so I thought my angle of view on these developments ought to be set out. Well, the reader may wonder, facing this this incredible uh, flaming pit into which you jumped in 1982 when uh, the president phoned you and asked you to take the job, why did you take the job? Well, it's a great privilege to serve your country and a great opportunity to do something about the problems that are there. The Secretary of State does have some chance to make a dent, and so I accepted does it take a particular kind of temperament to succeed in the job? Well, the temperaments of the people who have been Secretary of State, and outstandingly so, are rather different if you take uh, recent ones, George Marshall, Dean Acheson, Henry Kissinger. Those are three very different people, Dean Rusk. It requires a great deal of patience, though, doesn't it? Well, it requires reasonable intelligence, it requires a tremendous amount of energy. You work very hard because the thing's going on all the time, and you are right there, as I say in my book, in the cockpit of the free world. And uh, it takes patience. You have to know when to wait and keep working at something and when to take action and force issues. Uh, so uh, all those techniques come into play. Well, you make the point in the book that, that diplomacy affects the future not only through your management of the day-to-day -day crises, the decisions you must make before all the facts, as you would like them to be, are in, but also through a long-term strategy that doesn't always produce results today. Right. I think it's very important in any administration to have a long-term strategy and to have a view of uh, where you think you're going in different parts of the world. And if you don't, then you tend to work at crises just on a sort of firefighting basis, whereas what you really want to do is 
use a crisis if you can, not only to get the fire out, but to do something constructive in the direction that you're trying to go. But if you don't know where you're going, you can't do that. Well, as a rule, have you found that politicians are patient enough to see the long-term effects? It's, in many cases, a, a strategy that may not produce results until after they're out of office. Politicians have a little trouble with that. Businessmen have a little trouble with that. Uh, people tend often to be short-term oriented, but the good ones have a vision, and they have the backbone to see it through. And I think from the standpoint of the Reagan administration, the capacity of Ronald Reagan to to have a vision in a general way and also on uh, problem after problem was very important. And of course, he had a very stiff backbone and would undertake things that he felt were right and work at them and uh, uh, wind up with the country supporting him. Did you sense that Mr. Reagan understood uh, the the concept that you lay out in the book of the inextricable link between strength and diplomacy? He understood that link very well. In fact, he understood it a lot better than most of his conservative supporters who advocated strength and cheered him when he built up America's capacity and showed that he was willing to use it. But he was different from most of them in that he had he he thought of himself as a bargainer, negotiator, uh, going back to his days as head of the Screen Actors Guild. And he told me lots about his experiences in that uh, era. So he had the idea that we should use our strength to try to change a situation through negotiation to the advantage of the United States. And he had confidence that uh, he was the kind of negotiator who could make a good deal. Must you, as Secretary of State, also be a skillful negotiator internally, that is, sitting down with the President and, and respectfully disagreeing, laying out your position, trying to get him to see your point of view on a particular issue or area? You certainly have to be ready to take issue with the President and argue with him. Otherwise, you don't serve him well. And I think you have to recognize that you shouldn't want your job too much. You have to be willing to leave it if you must. But uh, those are things that people have to keep in their minds. You were you make uh, you. I don't know whether you were hinting at a different point, but it, if you were, it's a good one. And uh, that is that in any negotiation, usually the most difficult negotiations are with your own side, and trying to get the point of view of your own uh, uh, people lined up and supporting is sometimes more difficult than dealing with your opposites. And we had lots of arguments in the Reagan administration. Some of them were debilitating, but in many cases it was very important and good to have these arguments because we were dealing with very important issues, and so you wanted to be sure that all the angles were aired. But that's what a democracy is. If it were a dictatorship, you would have someone at the top saying, this is the way we will do it, period, end of discussion. Right. But lots of administrations don't have the degree of argument we had. And the press commented usually unfavorably on the amount of argument. And some of it was not helpful. But on the whole, I think, having people who cared a lot and who had views and put them forward was important. And so the president knew what all the angles were before he decided what he was going to do. 
After this short break, George Schultz explains why the U.S. nearly had to deploy nuclear missiles in Europe. Now back to my 1993 interview with George Schultz. Uh, early on in the book, you quote from one of the uh, editorials near the end of your your first year uh, that that praised you for steering our port foreign policy back into a more moderate course and and keeping it on track with the the practical and the possible. Was that a difficult task? Was was were, were we not in an, on a moderate course when you took office? One of the things that was going on when I took office was a major dispute with our European allies over their desire to work with the Soviet Union in building a pipeline. And President Reagan had thought that this was a bad idea and had imposed sanctions. First, sometime uh, right after uh, the decision was made, after, right after uh, the Polish uh, solidarity was put down with Soviet uh, complicity. And then he tightened those sanctions in June of 1982, just before I took office, and uh, said to our companies that contracts you had signed were now null and void. In other words, a retroactive sanction. And subsidiaries of U.S. companies abroad or licensees abroad were also subject to these same rules. And the Europeans went up in smoke because they said retroactivity and what they called extraterritoriality, that is the reaching out through this means to extend American views, force them on them, was resented. And there was a boiling dispute. And I could see, speaking of the long-term considerations, that the following year was going to be a year of intense bargaining with the Soviet Union, we would need a cohesive alliance. And in the end, if we couldn't reach agreement, we would have to deploy intermediate-range nuclear missiles on European soil, which was going to be very sensitive. So you had to get this dispute out of the way. In addition, I argued, these kinds of sanctions are a wasting asset because U.S. equipment is getting engineered out of all of this, and pretty soon it won't make any difference. And that's not a good thing. So I had to struggle to uh, get what I regarded as a rather extreme position modified. And I think maybe that's what they were reflecting, because I was an all-out supporter of Ronald Reagan and the views that we should have strength and, and uh, that the uh, Soviets were a real menace. But also, as you point out, at every step along the way, whether it's dealing with Europe or with El Salvador or with Japan, the Middle East kept tugging at you and bringing you back. You'd be, go to work on one thing, and something would happen in the Middle East and draw you right back into that. Was that the focus of your entire six and a half years, the Middle East? The Middle East was always there, and I put an immense amount of effort and work into it. But uh, even though it drew me back, as you say, I think quite uh, accurately, I worked very hard to maintain a worldview and to pay attention to problems around the world. I spent a lot of effort on the Asia-Pacific region, on Japan, on China, on South Korea, on the uh, Southeast Asian nations, and uh, 
we had one of the most interesting negotiations, I think, in bringing about the independence of Namibia and Southern Africa. Does it trouble you, though, that in a book of this girth and uh, a, a tenure of six and a half years, that so many of the questions that I've heard you pummeled with in the last few days seem to begin with, well, what about that Iran-Contra thing? Does it trouble you that that seems to be the focus of what so many people want to ask you? Yeah, it does bother me. Uh, it's understandable that people focus on that, but the big thing about the Reagan administration was that... Uh, the world was transformed during the time we were in office. The Cold War basically ended, and we also saw a rearrangement and a very positive set of relationships in the Asia-Pacific region, a region of immense importance to us. And we saw a, a rearrangement of what the conventional wisdom was. And by the time we left office, people felt that uh, free political institutions and free economic institutions were the way to go. In the long historical view of things, is it going to matter at some point that Ronald Reagan engineered or somehow was in charge at a time when we traded arms for hostages? Is that going to make a difference? Well, I hope that there will be at least something positive out of the uh, close examination of the Iran-Contra business. And the positive thing, as I see it, is that people really took it on board that you shouldn't make deals for hostages. There were good reasons why. And uh, that, I think, sunk in with the American people and will make it much easier to handle things like that in the right way. At one point in the book, you allude to the fact that when Mr. Reagan left office and Mr. Bush took office, that you had handed the Bush, uh, you collectively, the, the administration, had handed the incoming administration some momentum. Uh, the, as you say, the Cold War had ended. Things were, were on track. Looking back now on the completed four years of the Bush administration, did they take advantage of that momentum? Did they keep it going? Well, eventually they uh, they inherited it, and eventually it carried itself forward, but uh, Brent Scowcroft, the national security advisor, had opposed the intermediate-range uh, forces treaty. He was very skeptical about the strategic arms treaty. He and the man he selected to be his deputy in the NSC staff, Bob Gates from the CIA, seemed to feel that the Soviet Union just couldn't change. And they thought that Ronald Reagan and I were kidding ourselves and believing that change was taking place. So it wasn't until toward the end of the year that the Bush administration really sort of picked up. And, of course, uh, it wasn't long thereafter that the Berlin Wall fell, and uh, then a little while after that, the Soviet Union literally disintegrated. May I ask you about uh, the the, uh, the situation in Bosnia right now? The president is on the verge, apparently, of making a decision that would involve airstrikes, uh, uh, lifting of the arms embargo, yet the talks are to resume, apparently, this weekend toward peace. This is a delicate road he's walking, isn't it? No, I don't think so. The uh, business of starting talks toward peace, as you put it, the meeting in Athens, um, is uh, looks has all the earmarks of a replay of this continuing process in which the Serbs have made suckers out of all of us in the United Nations. 
because they say, look, we're negotiating in Athens or Geneva or somewhere. Don't take any action that might disrupt these negotiations. And what are they doing while this is going on? They're pounding away. Their artillery and so on, and they're murdering people, raping women. They're just doing terrible things while they're telling us that we shouldn't do anything. And I was very glad to see Secretary Christopher come out of a meeting uh, early evening yesterday, and he was asked this very same kind of question, and he said, we're going to proceed with our plan regardless of this meeting. So I don't think we should continue to allow the Serbs to throw us off stride that way. Would the lifting of the arms embargo be a good idea? Yes, it would. But I think that we have to uh, recognize that the Serbs must be confronted with military force. I hope through uh, a UN force, but the U.S. will have to uh, move aggressively there and show that we're willing to participate heavily ourselves. I think a um, very large-scale use of air power on military targets throughout Serbia, not just along the front line, so to speak, is called for, and it will reduce the capacity of the Serbs to um, do what they're doing, and for that matter, do other things. And people say you shouldn't put in ground troops, or it'll take a half a million ground troops to do the job. When I was in office and the military would come up with proposals like that, we'd we called that the bomb Moscow option. In other words, you weren't going to do it. It was a way of preventing action. But there are troops on the ground. They're called Bosnian Muslims. They want to fight for their homes and their country. And I think we should be willing to help them get the tools to do it. George Schultz died this past February at the age of 100. And you can find easy Amazon links to George Schultz's books at our website, heardeverything.com. Would you do me a favor? If you liked today's episode, would you tell a friend about Now I've Heard Everything? We post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time, as we wrap up Schultz Week here on Now I've Heard Everything, my 1989 interview with one of the world's most revered cartoonists, the creator of Charlie Brown and Peanuts, Charles Schultz. The biggest and most difficult thing is to create these broad new themes like uh, Lucy pulling away the football and her psychiatric booth, Linus's blanket, Schroeder's playing the piano, Snoopy's chasing the Red Baron. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thompson.